Hello, and welcome back to episode 4 of The Thirst Time. For those that don't know, the aim of The Thirst Time is to take a deep dive into that first beer that changed everything. For some of the most creative, boundary-pushing, innovative, and generally just all-round great people in the industry today, and how that moment was the first step in the career they now find themselves in. Today, I sit down, albeit thousands of miles apart, with a very special guest, none other than Sam Richardson, founder and master brewer of Other Half Brewery, based out of Brooklyn, New York. If you know beer, then you know that name comes with a great weight. Or, if you're at beer festival, a cue. <laughs> it's hard to describe Other Half without some serious hyperbole. They are pioneers, trendsetters, innovators, and probably the most influential breweries in the modern beer scene. They've pushed the boundaries on everything from hopping rates in IPA to exactly what ingredients can be put into a beer. It's no accident that these guys sit on such a high perch. Uh, Sam has been brewing beer for over 18 years now and has amassed a wealth of knowledge along the way, brewing everything from West Coast IPAs to lagers. There is so much I could talk to Sam about on the beer side, but what I was really excited to dig into was his philosophy on the functionality of a brewery in today's society and who it is it should serve. Personally, the conversations I've had with Sam have shifted and changed my perspective on all of these matters, and I'm super interested to see what you think. Oh, and the man loves hops. This was an interesting conversation, the first time we've had such uh, technical difficulties at the start. We had an invasion midway through, but I think uh, we came out with something pretty good at the end of it, so I hope you enjoy it. So, first things first, we ask what that first beer was for him. Uh, well, first, I mean, first beer goes, goes way back to like some classic Northwest, uh, like light lagers. Um, where I grew up, there was this one called Henry Weinhardt's, which is, I don't know, in the States, there's a bunch of regional kind of like light lagers and ours was Henry Weinhardt's. And that was probably the first thing that I tried. Um, but then there's so much craft beer in Portland, especially, you know, this was 20, 25 years ago now. Cause That's, I'm old. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such a, it's, I was, I was thinking, and I said it to you when we've tried this interview the first time, uh, that cause you're from Oregon, I wasn't sure if like, just as a baby, you just fed IPA in the bottle. It's just, just so intrinsic to the, to the place. Almost. I mean, right. When I was, uh, when I was in my, teens like beer really started to take off um mm-hmm. craft beer wise so especially in the northwest so we yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of influence that that way i think it there's a big difference between um what's what's still happening on the west coast in places like oregon versus the east coast which is and it's actually very similar in the uk beer is part of culture um i don't think people people don't spend as much time trying to uh, parse out the technicalities behind beer and they don't, they don't go online as much to talk about it. I mean, it still happens somewhat, but, but so many people buy beer and buy craft beer that it's not really like this um, like cool kid club anymore. It's like everybody does it. And so, you know, because that's, because that, because it was so popular when I was a teenager already, like it's so far part of culture now that it's hard to, it's hard to separate it to. Whereas where we are on the East coast, I think craft beer didn't really craft beer boomed here like five years ago. 
I mean, it was always around, but it really boomed in the last like five to 10 years mm-hmm. with what was happening in Vermont. Um, and then now in places like New York city, but to go back to the question, it was, I, I would say probably the beer I remember being the most influential to me was Bridgeport IPA. I'm sure I, I can't remember exactly, but I'm sure it was hundred percent cascade hops. Oh, amazing. Um, you know, because that's, that was the hop that created craft beer and people don't think it's, people don't think it's sexy nowadays, but man, when, when Cascade was the, was the hop, it was super sexy. You know, like yeah. everybody thought Cascade was awesome. I don't know if you did like an oat cream or all Cascade that people would be queuing around the block <laughs> for at this present moment. Well, we, we have done, we've done some all Cascade beers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do, they do okay, but definitely people are not as excited about them. No. It's just not, it's just not the thing. Yeah, it's interesting as well what you kind of like alluded to in in the fact that I think it's probably still a question over here is when does craft beer just become beer? And obviously in Oregon, it just feels like it was just so intrinsic to where it was, what it was, that people just drank and beer. And it was just so happened that it was like really well-produced, hoppy IPAs. Um, yeah, I don't know if, if, if it felt like that, that it was just beer. It wasn't. Yep. It wasn't necessarily like this big difference. It was just... It's just what it was. You guys, I think the evolution though for you guys is shorter because mm-hmm. you guys, real ale is a lot closer to what craft beer is than just like light lagers. So I feel like that jump isn't as, isn't as big, which is why I really think like seeing what's happened in the UK over the last five years, which is just this, you know, leap forward that's that far outstrips any other any other place i can think of in interest and also just the development of beers uh it's been really interesting because you got you guys basically got to where it took us in the northwest and and on the east coast here you know 30 years to get to you know jumping from i think it's i think it's because of the culture you guys drink beer as a culture and so you're already i think People are already interested in that. And uh, I just don't think that that's something you can, you can't, you can't create that anywhere else. Like you either are into it or you're not culturally. And I think that that's why it just moves so fast. So on the East Coast, do you think it was a lot more about like converting people to drink something totally different to, to anything they'd had before? Whilst over here, it was just a slight leap. Because like we were having beer festivals, like in the local pubs that I worked at when I was 18, 17, you'd have 25 different handfuls of all these, you know, bitters basically. And yeah, uh, but, it's like, all, but it's craft beer. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're all small producers, right? I mean, yeah. the majority of them, not all, but, um, yeah, the, no, no, no culture like that really existed here. I think. Because of prohibition in this country, like the amount of breweries plummeted for a really, they plummeted around when prohibition happened and then it took so long for recovery to happen. And I mean, light lager was just what there was to drink for like 40 years. Um, and then, you know, you had people like Sierra Nevada opening up and starting to look at traditional styles and bring them back and also put, put like an American spin on them. And, uh, but it just the recovery time just took forever, and 
on the what I think on the West Coast it's a little faster. Those I feel like a lot of times food culture moves faster there than it does on the East Coast, um, and I think that's probably why I started there. But now it's now it's everywhere. I mean, it's becoming slowly part of culture on the on the East Coast. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like tap rooms and breweries. It's so much part of the culture over in america as opposed to over here but it's interesting that you hack back to like cask beer and and things like that that probably many people just skip over and don't really dive into it through that avenue yeah well i i think i think that the beer is about um it's about culture too and fun and i think that you know you can easily trace that back to pub culture in the uk where people people that's the excuse is to get together. You can go to some place that has beer and drink it. Right. But it's still, it's an excuse to get together. And I think ultimately like everybody's doing that. That's, that's all what we're still trying to do is create connection, which is why this exact moment is so painful because people aren't able to go and connect like that. But I think, um, you know, like beer is supposed to be, beer is supposed to be fun. And I think, and it's supposed to create, an atmosphere of fun. I think people getting together and, and enjoying beer is, you know, together is like this cultural moment that you, that you need and can't replace. So, yeah. There's there's so much in there that I want to dive into, but I feel like I want to skip right back to kind of your early days as a brewer because I listened to an interview with you and I thought it was hilarious because you said that you homebrewed six times and you were just immediately like annoyed oh. about its inefficiency. <laughs> so I was just like, that's great. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. I had a, I had a, a good friend and, and I would always, we actually, we actually went to great lengths to build out a pretty, a pretty um, advanced homebrew system too. Um, and I just, we started doing it and I, I liked it, but then I was just like, this is this, the amount of beer we're making is stupid. Like what's the point of this? So, uh, yeah, I just jumped straight, um, into looking for ways to move into the, into the industry. And I think this was, this is one of the things about being from Oregon. That's a huge advantage that, um, Oregon state university had fermentation science mm-hmm. as part of their curriculum. And they were one of the only schools in the country that had that it was uh, UC Davis, which is obviously the oldest and was largely driven by the fact that it was in a wine region um, but, but it also, you know, Oregon's also a pretty big wine region and there's a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of breweries. So that, that program existed to kind of feed all that. So I got, I got super lucky that it was there and I got involved with that because I was kind of spinning my wheels, trying to figure out what to do after high school. And then, um, yeah, I did that. And then I just started working in breweries and that's all, that's really, that, that's it. Was it a kind of common path to tread? Did you have a lot of friends who kind of went into the beer industry from, or was it still pretty specified? Like it wasn't, it wasn't something that everyone was going to jump into. No, I mean, I only see, I see one, um, I only see one person I went to school with ever. Uh, she owns a brewery in uh, Dunedin, uh, Florida uh, called Seventh Sun. Oh, amazing. And yeah, so she and I were, uh, Devin's her name. She and I were in school together and, you know, 
she's the only person I ever see from that program anymore. I, a lot of, I don't think a lot of people just, some people, some people went to wine and some people just never followed that route. So I think, um, it's not that common. I think you start to see it a little more now. You see more, more graduates from those programs, but I think at the time I did it, it was pretty, pretty rare. So. And, and did that really lay the foundation of how you thought about brewing? Was it, was it much more like a science-based kind of build from there? Or was it a feel palette kind of like taste side? Or were you, were you grounded was, in the, in the, in the, how it worked like the engineering side of, of creating beer? Yeah, I think it, gave, I think it grounded you well in that regard. I think it gave me, you know, I think a base of knowledge is, is a really good thing to have, mm-hmm. but it's not essential. And I think a lot, I mean, I think <laughs> take, take that back, having, having knowledge of science and the way the world works just in general is very useful for brewing, but, um, you know, it doesn't have to be brewing specific. As long as you have some science background, you can, you can pick it up. Um, you know, maybe you're not going to work. You don't have to, you don't have to work in a lab. You don't have to do the science aspect of brewing to actually be a brewer. Those are just things you, that you can add. Most small breweries don't have a big lab. Most breweries, you know, they they just are making beer because you can also do it as a mechanical, you know, process production process mm. yeah so, i can i can vouch that our lab is also our kitchen staff room office uh it's not it's not a huge facility at all with a little yeah. microscope hidden in the corner because it's also just about taste yeah do you like does if you make a beer does it taste good mm-hmm. and then just be does do other people think that your taste tastes good and that's that's the most important thing, right? The science of it is, you know, people have figured out how to make beer, and there's there's it's like baking, right? There's like you once you have your recipes, if you follow them, you're going to have a result that works. So you, on a daily basis, you don't need to sit around and think about the science, but there are there's always opportunities to improve process, and I think that the brewers that have a science background are the people that kind of that add to the constant dialogue of improving craft beer. So. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm going to speak totally not as a brewer here, but like sometimes you feel that people limit themselves to what they think should work on a scientific basis without expanding just through palate. And I think you're such a good example. And, and again, like further down the conversation, I really hope we can dive in because what other half do now is so far away from what someone would probably, you know, going into that school would ever think about creating, if that makes oh, yeah. sense. Um. But yeah, your next protocol, did you, you went to a brew pub in Seattle, didn't you after that, was it? Yeah, I worked for a brew pub chain called The Ram in Tacoma, Washington and Seattle, Washington. When you were at these places, were you kind of, did you have the bug of starting something you, on your own right from the off or was it something that slowly kind of seeped in as you moved around? Because I know that from Seattle, I, I can't remember where you, did you go straight to uh, Greenpoint from Seattle or was it? No, I moved back to Portland. Right. Um, to work for Pyramid. Oh yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I always, I think I always wanted to do it. I'm glad that I waited though, because I feel like I got a lot out of, I got a lot out of seeing what's happened over the last 20 years in craft beer. Um, just the change from, 
the change from uh, the change in business models, the change in beer styles, um, even even like the subtle changes in beer styles, and then the way the way people look at beer now and the way that they uh, approach recipe development, I think, is dramatically changed. And I I'm glad that we didn't open when we did because I feel like there was a real break in about 2014, 2015 in the way people saw things. And, and I think that if you were on one side of that divide, it, you had to really, you had to really reinvent yourself in a way that I think a lot of people have a hard time with. Um, and I think we were kind of at the very beginning of that change, which is a lot easier than trying trying to adjust a business you've been running for 10, 15 years to meet, you know, people's new vision of what craft beer is. So I, I'm glad that I waited. I'm also glad I got to see so much of what was going on and get a better feel for it. And then having moved from, you know, I worked at pyramid for three years mm-hmm. in Portland and then I moved to New York in 2007 and getting to see the city change. When I moved here, there was four breweries. Which is insane for such a huge metropolitan city. Yeah. Eight million people, four breweries. I think there's five there's not even five hundred thousand people in Portland and there's over a hundred breweries. Oh, I remember so, when you when you told me that when I came over and I just couldn't believe that, that there was ever just five breweries in New York. Even now we still only have like thirty and that's you know, it's a it's a big place. So yeah, coming coming here and seeing that, and then being able to kind of grow with the scene here over time, and and get to know everybody was super helpful for us when we opened up. We already had a good base of uh, understanding of how people were buying, consuming beer, what was missing in the market, and also just some trust that we were going to make beers worth buying. When we walked into bars, so, uh, but yeah, it was. It was it was weird when I first moved here. I knew there wasn't a lot of breweries, but I was really shocked at just how slim the pickings were. I mean, we used to joke that that brewing in New York City was like a one in a million job because it probably was. Yeah, I think that totally. you know, if there's eight million people, like we had a couple, we had a handful of brewers at our location. There was a brew pub with a brewer. I mean, there was. I think Brooklyn only had a few brewers. I mean, there's really like probably like eight to 10 brewers in the city at yeah. that point. And so when you were kind of like, when you were working at, it was Greenpoint, wasn't it? In the, in yeah, Brooklyn. Greenpoint Beer Works. And you were, was that kind of just churning through the same recipes over and over again? Or was there much variation in what you were doing? When did your kind of like want to start exploring with flavors and brewing processes kind of kick in was it whilst you were doing that or was it something that came after that yeah it was our i mean i was definitely interested at that point we um we actually it was it was a funny brewery because we brewed so many other people's beer um and so yes there was there was a repetitive nature to the beer because we were making uh brands that were you know operating in more of the old school model and then, but we were constantly working with new brands because of, we were basically a contract brewery. And were you and so, taking, were they asking you all like advice on how to construct recipes or was it pretty much just like, here's the recipe sheet, brew it? 
pretty much here's a recipe she brew it and i think that it depends on depending on the brewery that was good and mm-hmm. you know sometimes it's bad <laughs> <laughs> you're just like i would but, not do this but i but i also you know like I, it's really up to them if they want advice but i'm not i'm not gonna tell people how to brew their beer so yeah. we just we made the beer and you know we we had uh we had a host of brands there that we worked with like we were ma- early on we were making all six points beer uh we were ma- we were even making beer for blue point Whoa. um southampton great south bay and then our two the two brands that we made in-house were kelso and which was my boss's brand and then uh heartland which was like a brew pub chain. Were you taking anything from like, cause obviously you are getting generally as a brewery, you're just brewing your own recipes going over, but getting all those different ideas from other people. Was that in any way like helpful to your ideas of what? Yeah, a little of, bit. Oh, yeah. Obviously anytime you get to see what other people are doing, you can see whether it's something that you would want to do or not want to do. So that's, that's always helpful. I mean, I think, that's one great thing about the collaborative nature of craft beer right now is that people are seeing all all kinds of ways of doing things and adapting them, their own, their own methods when they see something that makes sense for them. Um, And I think that there's a reason that craft, I mean, beer, I think craft beer is better now than it's ever been in terms of quality. Oh, without a doubt. Um, You know, I'm not, I'm not speaking to it, from you know a quantitative point i'm talking about a qualitative like people the tastes are better like people are people are putting more thought into how um something feels in your mouth how something how your how your taste but you know it's like it's not just it's it's more than just uh you know ipa recipes used to be really dry and bitter and then I think there's some, there's something to that. Some of those are nice, but then there's also people have figured out different ways to build in more body and certain, certain beers work better. Certain more body works better with certain hops. And I think all these things are, people are like experimenting with all the time. Like how do you, how do you maximize your ingredients to get the flavor profile and feel you want out of it? And I, I don't think people put as much effort into that before yeah it's just so funny that like dry and bitter were like the flavors of which it, we built from like <laughs> like it's just not a natural like pleasant flavors but, for, that humans have evolved to enjoy yeah but it comes from an it comes from an honest place i think the dry mm. part comes from people's desire to have clean healthy fermentations right like beers and beers were always, beers were always dry because of that and then i think yeah. people realized that they didn't want that and then they wanted to figure out ways to take take beers add more body back into them and you know because not not all beers are great dry some of them are some of them are excellent dry mm-hmm. but not everything so i think but i don't i don't really feel like when i think back on it i don't think there is quite as intense um effort on brewers parts to manipulate that part of the process. Like, I think, I mean, it's always been there a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously people tried to make their stouts have a little more body and, but I feel like we've gone to a whole other we can, level. We can that. talk. Yeah. I was going to say we could talk about yeah. the bodies of stouts uh, a little later on. Cause you guys, oh man, it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so 
let's start other half how did that come to be so i was yeah so i was the head brewer at greenpoint beer works i had moved out to take that to take that job in 2007 to new york city and then um i was where i worked there for about six years somewhere i think i think it was 2010 uh matt monahan started working there um and we just always got along and we started talking about getting getting out of there and doing our own thing and i think um that leap is a that leap was a big one to try to figure out because new york city is not a cheap place to do business and which it's, is probably like why there was so little breweries there because it's well one of the highest yeah. you know well there's one other there's a, there's another there's another thing that happened that I think really aided the growth of brewing in New York city, which was change the laws to allow people to drink on premise at breweries. You were not allowed to do that before. So I think now that people can go to breweries and they can interact with the breweries and the staff, I think that there's even more love for the local breweries because Mm -hmm. they get to interact with people and see how great, see how great the scene is. Yeah, I didn't realize yeah. that. I, it was actually when I spoke to Corey on uh, episode two, he he told me that there was a law in place that wouldn't allow tap rooms. So yeah. obviously that had just hindered any sense of anyone wanting to start a brewery because yeah, how are you going to generate income without going huge? It's going to be impossible. Right, right. Head above water. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, you can't make money distributing beer. No, like you have well, to we- have some. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, like you have to have some income through the front door because the margins for distributed beer is so terrible. And I, uh, this is, you guys also have a pretty strong bottle shop culture there. And I, I, for me, like when I look at it, I think that that's, that's good. Um, but I think that, you know, I see a lot of people get upset when beers don't end up in bottle shops in the UK. And I, and I think, well, I don't think people understand just how bad margins are when you have to put so many other people in between. And, you know, I think that people going to breweries to buy beer is one thing that will protect breweries. from. You have to be a hundred percent distro. You're much more susceptible to going out of business because you're not the one making all the, you know, there's a lot of other people. And that right there, that scream that you just heard right at the end, and now here in the background of this track, uh, is Sam's son's first foray into the musical world. He barged in um, and started singing for us, which was an amazing experience. And uh, our genius producer Tom thought he'd make a track out of it. So this is Sam's son's first musical venture. All royalties will be going back to him, of course. Um, anyway, back to it. This is the first time, and you're listening to an interview with Sam Richardson. What you were just saying there, Sam, is like, man, I've had so many conversations with you and just left with my whole kind of belief in what is the industry changed. And what's happened over here with this, obviously, with this current crisis is is basically taking a hammer to what we thought the industry was and how it worked. And we've had to change really quickly um yeah. and also it's kind of it has a yeah this is it's kind of difficult to speak about because you know you've got friends who are distributors and we've worked with distributors and 
but it's really shown from our side as a brewery, you know, we would get into points where we couldn't buy hops for our beers and stuff like that, you know, and that's, that's yep. the stranglehold that you're under. And no one really sees that like behind the scenes side. And sometimes they think you're charging loads for a beer and which is fair. They don't, they don't understand and they're not there to understand the whole process that goes behind it. But like, that's not being made really ex- like it's not an expensive beer that's going straight into the brewer's pocket. There's just so much in between it. Um, oh my God. So many things. Yeah. And it's really, you know, it's really exposed what was a really hard industry to work in, you know, the, and, and we're a relatively, you know, we have a pretty good reputation and people want to drink our beers. So if you're, if you're not like, yeah, it's taken us some years to get to, but if you're not there, then you are just playing for peanuts. Yep. And, and that's why, and this is why so many breweries try to grow as big as they do, because so if your margins are really terrible, you have to make a lot of beer, mm-hmm. a lot of beer to make it work. And then, and then you're vulnerable to market changes or situations like this, where like if all, if half of your beer goes to market in cask or keg and suddenly nobody can go to a bar and drink it, how do you sell that beer anymore? And so you know, this is, I think my point isn't to, you know, tell people not to go to bars and bottle shops. They obviously should. Bars are amazing. Bottle shops are amazing. But like, I think everybody needs to understand if you live near a brewery, go spend some of your money at the brewery too, because the brewery actually needs it. It's not a matter of, it's not a matter of, uh, you know, taking out of other people's pockets. Like the breweries themselves usually are on such tight margins that if you don't actually support them at the source, uh, it, it's just difficult for them. And I, you know, obviously people don't understand that they see it as manufacturing and, Oh, you're selling a lot of beer, then things must be going well. But there's so many breweries that sell a lot of beer that are just like a one month away from shutting down. It's, and you, you are literally like, and I guess, you know, what's happened to the restaurant industry is you've seen Michelin starred places that everyone thought was, uh, were earning millions and millions, but left without cash flow for 30 days they're gone like they can't function and they won't be able to function unless if it's at capacity every night and it's pretty similar for a brewery like you it's not it's not a high margin game and it's and if you try and do really invent in you know inventive beers and with high hopping rates and then you go through a distribution channel it's, no. it's yeah <laughs> it's basically um no which is like so when you started other half you you were super aware of this i imagine yeah i mean we saw you know well we the first year we were open we only did draft beer but that worked out well for us because we had small staff and we we were self distributing it and New York City is so big, it was really easy for us to just stay. We could just stay in Manhattan and Brooklyn and deliver all the beer. Um, in fact, we Matt and I did all the brewing and the delivering uh, the first year. And we did, we did pretty good. We, we made about 2,000 barrels that year. So we were very busy, right? I just like, can't imagine. <laughs> delivered in New York, man. Yeah. But, but because everything's blocked, I mean, we could go to one block and drop off at two accounts pretty easily, right? Um, so we were able to do okay because we were doing it that way. But um, the, what made the biggest difference was 
when they changed the law to allow people, a lot of breweries to have tap rooms, that was about four months after we opened. And that really, that really allowed us to get a better foothold because people were now coming to the brewery, meeting our staff. Um, you know, Anthony was our first bartender. <laughs> still, uh, still, oh yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, he, he was there before we opened, he was, he would stop in and help us do drywall. Yeah. Yeah. He'd come in and help us with, uh, different projects to get open. And then, yeah, he's, he's our longest standing employee and he's basically been working for us since before we opened. Yeah. And he's an awesome dude. I've seen a few of his late, late night videos that he's been doing, but how big did you think the void was? for you to move into when you opened the other half? Was it like, obviously there's always risk when you're starting a new business um, to not, to, to feel that it's going to be unpredictable and not really know. But did you think there was, you know, there was room to move in? Yeah. Yes. We were at a, we were at a moment that does not, that does not exist right now, which was that it was like an abyss in New York city. I mean, I felt, reason i felt really reasonably confident that we were going to sell everything we made mm-hmm. and that's an unusual position to be in not to say that we were never worried like we always you know you can't you can't avoid being worried about starting a business um it's a lot of stressful it's a lot of stressful moments but at the same time there was such a there was such a void in in the beer scene here that i i felt really confident and there was not, there's not a lot of IPA being produced. And so we just stepped right into that. Remember in the intro when I said Sam loves hops? Well, we are about to dive into just why. And if you don't come out the other side of this with the same admiration, then you probably shouldn't be listening to this. Only kidding. But hops are great. Uh, you are listening to Track Brinko Presents the first time, and this is our interview with Sam Richardson. And was this coming because you, yeah, because you were coming from Oregon where it was just everywhere. Yeah. So, so ubiquitous everywhere. And uh, you could just see that that mold works, but just put it into New York. Yeah. I mean, I mean, IPA is still the number one craft yeah. variety at this point. It and I don't die. think it's going to go anywhere because, and it shouldn't. Anybody that anybody that has an issue with IPA is just wrong. Hops are hops are amazing. It's one of the most amazing plants that grows. Think about the diversity of flavors that come from that. People make beers that taste like lychee and and orange and lemon lime and you name it, blueberry, all kinds of tropical fruit just from hop cones. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's in- absolutely it's it's incredible like how similar like i mean obviously a big one that's been pretty divisive uh i i really like it in bits is sabro which is like if you have a single hop sabro it is just yeah. coconut like it's so coconutty it, it just feels like it shouldn't be right that nature can produce two flavors it's, it's so similar but in a totally different but yeah and i also challenge people that say they don't like sabro are also wrong because <laughs> And I, and I, I don't mean it. I don't mean from like the perspective of if they really, if it's not some, if it's not like their favorite hot profile, that's one thing. But just to say you, unless you hate coconut to say you don't like it. I mean, it's such, it's so amazing that you can make a beer taste like that. It's just, just from, just from it being an interesting 
beer from that standpoint alone. It's something that people yeah. should appreciate. It doesn't mean it's got to be the next beer you go out and buy as another Sabro beer, but like, come on, that's amazing. It's a beer. It's a, it's a IPA. It's hops and it tastes like coconut. Like what the fuck? Really? So I, I don't know this. It's insane. I, I think people get caught up. Like they want it to, they want all IPAs to taste the same. They want to taste like juicy tropical fruit, but I challenge people to, mm-hmm. to, to look at it from the perspective of this is all, these are all hot plants and they're, and they're producing these different flavors. Like it's interesting in its own, right? Like this is something to celebrate. Like that's so amazing that they can do that. Um, and it's just from crossbreeding different, you know, different hop plants. I like, we should celebrate that amazingness because hops are, hops are super cool. It's like the, it's just the one thing that I care most about every year, rightfully so, since we make IPA is going to hop harvest and selecting our hops. I remember you like, cause you do, you've done a lot of traveling, do a lot of festivals. There's a lot of important stuff that you have to go out, but you said that the number one thing on your list that you will never not go to is the hop selection. And we haven't had the, we, we haven't had the chance of, yeah. of going yet. So we, but we were supposed to go this year was our first selection. Uh, but we've never been part of that kind of trip and it feels like almost like a rite of passage, but you put so much emphasis on how important that is to you as a brewery. And obviously you guys are at the forefront of big flavorsome IPAs that those little nuances really give you, I don't want to say an edge, but like a character to your beers that maybe no one else is going to be able to get. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's important. It's agricultural product. No, no lot of, I mean, you know, I won't say no lot, but you know, pretty much no lot of citra is the same. And, Mm -hmm. you know, getting the chance to get a bunch of different lots in front of you and try them out um, to see what, what you think of aromatics is amazing. This is your opportunity to plan out your beers for the next year. And, you know, if you get, citra that doesn't taste good you're making citra beers for an entire year that don't taste good so who wants that and and the thing is like there are i i will say i think there are lots of citra that are not good there's also there's also lots of citra that are amazing but are not to your profile they're not what you want in your beer so Mm -hmm. i think that you know every brewery goes into it with a different approach um and what's not what, what one brewery thinks is amazing, another brewery thinks is garbage and the other way around. Um, but I, I do think that it is an important thing, especially as your brand grows, it's a good way to, to really uh, elevate what you do. Do you have a preconceived idea of kind of the flavors that you're, you're looking for? Or are you just waiting to smell it? And if it, if it hits you, it hits you. And that's the one you're going to want. I, yes, I do. But I'm also flexible on it. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, I think that a lot of, a lot of the uh, hot brokers, when we talk to them, they're like, well, this is, you know, after years of doing it with them, they're like, well, this seems like what your flavor profile is. And then I'm like, yeah, but we're not here for, I'm not here for you to kind of stick within a flavor profile guideline. I'm here for the best possible hops I can get. If, you know, if the Simcoe, we've been, we pretty consistently pick lots of Simcoe that are non, that are, I would say are not traditional Simcoe, much more pineapple. It's like creamy pineapple dankness. And that's been kind of our go-to. Mm-hmm. And we've, 
you're at the last few years we've managed to find lots that were like that. Um, but that said, if and that's what I prefer, but if, if somebody put a lot of Simcoe in front of me that had a different profile that was equally or more amazing, I might go that direction. Because for me, I just want to make sure that we're putting forward a beer that tastes amazing. And that's, that's the bottom line. Like we don't try to match our Citra, you know, a lot of breweries, and this is understandable. If you're, if you're a heavy distro brewery, you might, and you're, let's say you're, you're huge. Let's say you're a Lagunitas. Yeah. And you need con, con, continuity. Yeah. If you're like a Lagunitas or something and mm-hmm. you need the beer, you need your Citra beer to taste the same all year long, then you're going to be looking at as many lots as you can that are the same and trying to match them up. Or maybe if you can't get them close enough, you're blending them. But if we get an amazing select, if we get an amazing lot from someplace, I try to actually try to separate that out and brew with it separately, which is, we just did that. Actually, we had this lot of mosaic that we got at the end of harvest this year. That was unbelievable. Um, and we've, we've kept that separate in the last two mosaic beers we did were just straight from that lot. And we did the same thing with Motueka too. We had a Motueka lot from Freestyle Farms last year that was unbelievable. And we, we kept that separate. Um, it's the most incredible strawberry lemon lime profile, which is kind of unusual for Motueka. Motueka is usually a lot more straight lemon lime, but this like strawberry note. You know, when you go into these hop selections, these guys have been farming and producing these hops for a long time and they know you know they've nailed down the processes to get the absolute maximum flavor from each cone yeah um no like accident how good no yakima is a machine i mean i don't think people understand uh, how much effort goes into it um i think you know people look at you know, people look at citru- you know, oh, brewery runs out of citra, and everybody's like, well, just go get more citra. And I don't think people realize that there's like a limit to how how much citra can be grown, how much mosaic can be grown. Um, you know, it's like it's like any variety of plant. There's early harvest varieties, mid harvest varieties, late harvest varieties, and if you're a farmer, in order to actually have your farm be successful, you need to be able to have early harvest mid harvest and late harvest varieties because you can't process them all at once. Like they have to pull them out of the field, pick them, strip, strip the cones off the vines, killing it, package it into bales. And that's continuously happening as they're harvesting. Right. So you, you can't just sit there and let citra, you can't just leave citra in a warehouse. It has to be processed. So if you, if you, if your pick window for citra is, four or five days or whatever, if you can't pick it all in that time frame, then you're going to start having a hop that's not like Citra. And so, yeah, I think, you know, people don't understand that aspect of hops is that they're, they change, they change in the field constantly, the longer they're there, it's a different hop. And I think that, um, you know, that's, that's, what's amazing about hops, right? Like there's a reason farmers still grow Willamette. Yeah. Like you don't brew with it. I don't brew with it. Well, maybe you do, <laughs> but, but somebody is, is yeah. but it's also an early harvest variety. It's like a, it's like a variety that a farmer has to grow 
they need something to grow in the early the, that's early harvest so that they can be picking and working and growing hops and selling them. Um, yeah, you can't just plant citra forever. So it's all of this experience that goes in when when that other half beer is poured in the tap room. There's all of this like. It's the stuff that I find really interesting and all of the stories and the supply chains that go behind that. And like, you've gone out there and picked that individual hop to go in that glass that that person's going to get served and either go like, no, I'm not into that or be absolutely blown away. Yeah. Generally be blown <laughs> away when so. they're in your tap room. <laughs> yeah. um, so let's get to the, like, cause other half, like most people listening to this will know, the in, the flavor intensity that you get with your beers is kind of unparalleled. They just they just they just pop so much. Like aroma wise, flavor wise, you really bring out the tropical notes of the hops you use. Um, and was that right right from the off? That's the kind of beers you wanted to produce. That really hazy East Coast style. No, I mean, I obviously come from much more of a West coast background. So when we first opened, we were making kind of, I would say it was more of a hybrid because we were doing, we were doing more closer to West coast, but way more dry hopped. I mean, we were dry hopping at rates that I had never dry hopped at before working for breweries at Midwest coast IPA. Um, but we probably about a year in, we started to fully make the transition to just New England style. I mean, that's just what people really want. And yeah, um, we will, we will always try to make sure that we get to our customers, the beers that they would like. I mean, that's like, that's really important to remember is that we're not, we're not home brewers. Our job is to get people beers they love. So we were, you know, people were like, yeah, this, these are, these are great. I love how happy they are. But, you know, we also had, um, you know, Treehouse and Trillium and Hill Farmstead in the area, and they were mostly going in that direction. So we, we were like, all right, we're just going to do that. And um, I'm really glad we did for a number of reasons. One, I think it really, it was, it was a big uh, evolution for us in learning how to, to really make a different style. Um, so it's, it's funny because sometimes I see people say things like, you know, we've made a couple of West Coast IPAs and people are like, oh, look, they know how to make West Coast IPA. And it's like, well, <laughs> we did, we did <laughs> I was brewing that before you were even yeah, out. Before you, know, you were like, in the craft beer, I was making I was, West Coast IPA. Yeah. Um, so, but even... It's funny though, isn't it? That that's like seen as a benchmark of brewing. But that like, I think that, I don't know if it's happened in the States, but over here, sometimes people think that like New England IPA is lazy brewing. Yeah. And I can't tell you how frustrating that is because we've been brewing, we're, we're nearly like six years old and I, I've only just think that our IPAs are getting like really super popular. Yeah. You know? like, and that's six years of learning and trying and experimentation. And, you know, there was a couple of facility issues, like we didn't have certain things to help us along the way uh, as it, when it comes to equipment, but it is not lazy brewing. It's like ultimate yeah. dedication. I mean, we... To it. I think uh, a lot of people know that most most of the big New England style brewers now have centrifuges. I mean, we were, I think we were, I, I wouldn't make a bet, but I'm, I'm 99% sure we were the first like New England IPA specific brewery that installed a centrifuge. Um, 
which was kind of a risk because we weren't really sure how that was going to go. I mean, we make beers that are not clear. And then suddenly we put a centrifuge in the mix. Um, yeah, for people that don't know what a centrifuge is, it's gen- it was generally used for like lagering. Well, it can it? be used for pretty much, and it's just a solid separator. So you're basically, you can separate whatever solids you want. You know, solids are all different, part- uh, part, you know, size and particulate. So the harder you spin it, the more clear something becomes. Um, we obviously try to avoid making clear beer, but, you know, this is the thing is like a lot of people, like if you open another half can that's three months old, there's not going to be any yeast sediment, but it's still going to be hazy mm-hmm. it's because it's not, the haze is not yeast derived. Well, it's, it's not, it's yeast derived, but it's not, it's not from yeast staying in suspension. So we, like I said, if you open a can, it will, the bottom of the can, there will be sediment free. That's because we have a centrifuge and we clean up our beers and, um, but we still have the haze. And I think that the first time yeah. I took some, I took a skeptic about New England style IPA through and they saw the centrifuge in there. I, I, I'm trying, I wish I could remember who it was, but they were like, they're like, what do you use a centrifuge for? And I said, well, all of our beers go through that. And it was like, it was like, they got hit in the face. Just like, what? They just couldn't yeah, believe it. Like, it. Yes. Like, we do not do lazy brewing. We're very process driven. We're, we're very, very process driven. Um, our, our brew team can attest to that. They're, they're, they're process driven. Um, we're constantly looking for ways to make the beers better. Uh, and it's certainly not lazy brewing. I think most people have gotten over that idea that it's lazy brewing, but you know, yeah, I just saw someone tweet it the other day and I was just like, Ugh. it just irked me so much. I was like, this is not Liz. Yeah, yeah. This is like craftsmanship. Yeah, the worst is I don't know what I don't know what's more you know I mean I worked in breweries that made clear West Coast IPAs. I know what that takes. It doesn't really take the process mm-hmm. isn't that much more difficult than making New England style. So I'm not really sure where that idea comes from. Cause I think even brew- some brewers were saying it was lazy. And I'm like, I don't know how you can say that. I've, I've been on both sides of the coin. I know how you do both of them and there's no, there's not really a gap there. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. But like, so you guys kind of packed up New York, your tap room opens. And is that like the immediate effect of people drinking those hazy IPAs? You could just see that that was the thing that people were going to cling to and move towards. Yeah. I mean, I think that it was, it had already really happened in new England at that point. And that's mm-hmm. what, yeah, it was just like, I, you know, we were, I didn't want to miss out on that. Um, and it's a style. So it's a style that I played around a little bit with before, but, um, really wasn't too familiar with on a full production scale. So, but we decided that we needed to make sure we knew how to do it. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, and when you open your tap room, like I got the pleasure of seeing that, uh, tap room when we came and visited you guys and it is tiny. Oh, yeah. Well, it's because it was meant to be for to go sales because you couldn't have people on for on premise. And so, we just didn't have any space. I mean, we didn't have space anyways. And then mm-hmm. we just ended up with this tiny, tiny tap room and it was 
really painful for like two years, just jamming people in there. It was two years that you guys had that for. Wow, that must have been insane. I know a few friends who were were there in the early days, and they just said it was just like up against the wall with your glass like yeah. in your hand, just trying to take. I might a have sip. even been. Let me think. It might have been two and a half years. It was a. It was a long time. It was longer than I would have liked. You guys explored flavor in a totally new way to probably what was. I mean, obviously you had your New England IPAs and stuff, but your business partners were both. Were they both yeah. chefs, or they came from like a culinary background? And I think some of the best brewers that I've ever met have come from like a chefing background and they just think about flavor in a totally different yeah. way. Yeah. I mean, we have a, we have a lot of chefs. We've actually had a lot of chefs as brewers too. Um, I'm not, I never have been a chef, but um, I think it's certainly helpful to have people around to, to bounce ideas off of like that. Um, but you know, we put a lot of, we put a lot of crazy stuff in beers too, um, which, you know, tr- traditionalists don't always love, but like I said, to me, beer is about being fun. I mean, we also make fair, we also make really traditional beers too. Um, and I think that there's, well, I had your Hellas and it was delicious. Yeah. So. I've got, I've got a little bit of poetry snaps here, which is our, Japanese style rice oh, lager. It looks sick. <laughs> oh, incredible. Um, yeah, when people go to put that, I think again, that, that was like a little bit of Sam philosophy that I uh, I put on my pin board, which was listen to the customers. Like they will tell you what they want to drink. You've just got to have like, you've got to kind of remove your own ego a little bit maybe from it and just, and just understand what it is that those guys are getting excited about. And I think that's obviously led you to pushing the boundaries of what is even possible yeah. with, with beer well, and flavors and combinations. Yeah, it's definitely, you definitely have to listen. I think sometimes you have to listen between the lines a little because sometimes the loudest people are, are not always the nicest about what they think. But, but I do think that if you listen to like the overall, you'll get an idea of what people are asking you for. And I think that's super important because like I said, you're not a, you're not a home brewery you know, you're a brewery that makes beer for people and, you know, like mm-hmm. you should, you should listen to people. It's not about your own ego and what you think is the best beer. So, so often we make a beer and everybody in our staff is like, this is the best IPA we've ever made. This is incredible. The profile is amazing. The hop, the hops are popping. Like it's exactly like what the hop is supposed to taste like. And then customers are like, yeah, it's all right. And like we've all come be used to that because you know, like everybody we look at the beer differently too like we have a different approach to the beer because we're with mm-hmm. it we're with them all day long every day we have certain things we're looking for that maybe you know a customer's not looking for and we have to accept that what we think is great not everybody else is going to necessarily think is great and that's okay like we all have different we all have different tastes and interests and you know i don't also also understanding like a brewer can drink with a level of understanding of like oh oh, i can really feel that little bit of like say sabro coming through on the back end with a but generally you know not everyone but someone when they drink that it's just an immediate kind of like taste thing aroma thing and if it doesn't hit all those notes then you know it doesn't hit all those yes exactly there's not that many and there's we you know we definitely have beer drinkers that I see 
writing about our beer that pick out they can definitely you know pick out all the notes and i'm like yeah that's pretty accurate mm -hmm. from what i remember the beer being like when i tried it and i think that um but most people yeah they're just they're just trying to have fun and enjoy a good beer with their friends they're not like spent they're, you know they're not spending the entire time trying to pick it apart completely um yeah. but yeah again like beers just be fun and it sh it should which is going to lead me to my next part which is pastry stouts because you guys <laughs> uh, it's ridiculous what you guys have done but when was the first because obviously i know you guys started like were well grounded with ipas but when was that first move to do something like a huge or did you start on the like dry stout scene or did you did you ever bother with that or was it just you recognized that there was a movement towards well, these kind of i thought what beers? we were making was not dry and then and then florida was happening and then we were like, yeah, okay. But, you know, I come from more of an old school brewing background. So to me, like when we were making stouts that finished at like seven or eight Play-Doh, I was like, ah, oh, that's, that's, that's a big finishing beer. And then, you know, I am not a huge beer nerd in terms of trading. Like I don't get beers a lot. So takes it does take a while to filter in and i saw what people in florida were doing and i'm like wow this is definitely higher than seven or eight play-doh finish here um and i could see people were stoked on it and i was like all right um let's play around with that and uh, honestly like they make a lot of sense for barrel-aged beers especially like barrel-aged beers that are higher gravity just really uh, just really pop um but mm -hmm. yeah because you lose a bit of body in that but this is like what i was saying about the whole you know people are people are learning from each other constantly i mean i know um we get hit up a lot about ipa knowledge and you know i'll reach out to people just to like get their you know well what's your water profile just to kind of get an idea of how people are ending up with what they're ending up with um because i can't really mimic you know i can't make my water profile like like it is in florida or not very easily at least mm -hmm. so it's just really it's really interesting to just see what people are doing but yeah i mean we we were playing around with it already i really wanted to make stouts um and then we just like all right i, I see where i see where this is going people are really enjoying the high finishing ones so we started i, I still try to like it's a challenge i like to keep them drinkable but um but still full-bodied um but i guess more what i've gotten into is just flavor combos like to me that's the most fun part mm -hmm. of the of the process is trying to come up with these different flavor profiles to put into beer and this is where i think yeah like you were saying this leads into the the beer being fun thing like beer should be fun if you don't like those beers definitely don't drink them but i also feel like it's an opportunity yeah. to like see where brewers are pushing the boundaries in terms of flavor. Um, I can tell you when we started doing like pastry, it was, you know, we, I think we'd done one before our trip out to see you guys. And that was, you know, we, we centered around IPAs, hoppy IPAs. We, we probably produced four stouts in the first four years of our kind of like time. And then Matt started focusing his energy towards stouts and they are so much fun to start like tasting out the tank and seeing like how flavors can be utilized and their expression in the beer. Oh, yeah. 
So I know, you, I know it's so much fun to, it is so much fun on the back end, but then obviously that's translated on the front end when people try it and like, holy yeah. shit. Yeah, no, the, it, it, they're definitely, uh, they're definitely more fun, I think, to make than a lot of other beers. They're, they're a lot of work. Um, yeah. So I say they're more fun. I don't know if I don't know if our brew staff always 100% agrees with that, depending on what what they're being asked to do. But I think in terms of just coming up with flavor combos and releasing things that are, um, you know, fun and and I think when they when they hit all the notes of something, I think the I think our crew is pretty feels pretty proud of it. You know, it's just. Well, you guys, I, I think you put in front of me, it was the peanut butter and jelly crunchy <laughs> beer that we're had. It's like, what is this? It's insane. Um, but I guess we could dive a bit more, like just into that, because you're, you know, the cellar and you guys do is as advanced as the brewing that most people do. It's There's so much work that goes into that. Uh, I wonder if you could kind of just dive into a bit like, you guys are trying to utilize all fresh ingredients as well when you're doing these beers. It's not like um, aromatics or anything. It's it's the utilization of macadamia nuts or pistachio. And I mean, they, it's really hard to get the, like certain things like coconut just express themselves so quickly. They, they, they give themselves, but like when you're talking about like different nuts and pecan and this, that they're really, really hard to kind of bring that out. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't want to give away your secrets, but like, I just go in a bit of like what, how hard you guys work on that side. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot of work. I mean, processing, processing all the nuts takes a lot of time processing nibs and, you know, these things just take a lot of time to get, to get prepped and then getting them into a tank and getting them out of a tank. It's, it's pretty intense. I mean, and also every time you do it, you figure out new ways to do it better and uh but yeah i mean i would say i would say we definitely have at least one employee we kind of dedicated to dealing with adjuncts especially when we're leading up to something like pastry town or you know and we're when we're really going all in on it when we're trying to have just like a crazy crazy adjuncted beer week yeah it's it's intense but with you guys, you guys like, I, you know, I had a little browse and you guys have got over like 2 million check-ins now on Untapped, which is insane. And, and it's that kind of those, those beers. It's so insane. Uh, you know, it's those kind of beers. When people are tra- like New York is, there's a lot of people traveling through it and they're probably going to hit, if they've got any interest in beer, they're going to hit you guys up. And I feel like those pastry stouts and those crunches and stuff, they're a real like, they're a bit of theater in a glass that people are going to remember from that trip and they're going to walk away like, Oh shit. Do you remember that dark chocolate cherry salad yeah. thing that we had? Um, and you know, you've advanced that into like the festival side of things. And I don't know when you first did like pastry town or something, but that is, it feels like this embodiment of just like, yeah, well this year was, a, yeah. Beer. Well, that's what I was saying. It's supposed to be fun and it is supposed to be, um, you know, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a small part of what we make. I think that, I mean, I couldn't, mm-hmm. I don't have the exact number, but it's got to be less than 5% of our total beer production, you know, it, but it, it's a little bit larger than life because people are like, that's crazy that you have a sour beer that tastes mm-hmm. like peanut butter and jelly, you know, and 
they're right. It is a little bit wacky, but it's also super fun. And it's, and it gives, you know, like I said, you can come in and try that and you're like, yeah, I don't, that's not for me. And we'll have a Pilsner for you as well, or we'll have an IPA or a double IPA. We'll have, we'll have things that are not that, but I do think that for people that love that, it's, it's super fun. It's like a way to go to a brewery too with mm-hmm. your friends that really, if you're like the person that's like, I don't like IPA, you walk in and you're like, great. This is a blackberry, you know, blackberry granola beer. Like, cool. Like that's, you've, you've created something for somebody else. It's not just for, you're not just making beer for like a small niche group. And, uh, you know, like mm-hmm. when I was in Argentina, I took down one of those, uh, one of the, I took a blueberry crunchy down with me and one of the, one of the hop farmer's wives tried it and i thought her head was gonna blow off like her head she was like she's she like i've she's like what <laughs> what is this i've never had a beer like this before um and those kind of yeah it kind of skirts the, the the whether you you know like it's not what anyone would live yeah. as beer i guess when when they drink it for the but those time. moments are kind of they're priceless like those are so it's it's so fun cool. to make something that people are like whoa just watch them like i've never yeah. had anything like this it's that's it's fun you can't really like yeah i i i asked you if you ever like tried beers out the tank and just started laughing because you're just like holy shit this is insane. oh yeah for sure yeah that i mean the peanut butter and jelly crunchy was probably that you brought up was probably one of the ones where i was like yeah this actually tastes this tastes like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich like it really did i mean yeah, it was in, it was it was mind blowing. As far as like those, you just never think you're going to be able to replicate that. Yeah, and it did. Yep. And um, it's like right out of a, right out of your school lunch. So, it was unreal. Yeah, <laughs> but but it was pretty alcoholic as well. So yeah. you got to be careful on those things. <laughs> um, so there's there's so much I want to talk to you about, Sam, but I feel like I can't um, can't skip over. It's it's nuts to feel that like in every movement from music to art that you're doing things for the, th- the first time. And I feel like beer, you know, it feels like new things are happening all the time. And that isn't necessarily just what's going in the glass, but it's also the things that surround it. And you guys did something, which I think is the first for anyone in the beer industry, which was all together, which was this huge movement of like a global coming together of breweries that, you know, we've met through festivals or one way or another, or people just kind of latched on, um, that created a beer to support the hospitality industry, which has been totally devastated, uh, by the current crisis. And I wonder if you could just dive in a bit of like the thought process and then just like the expectation of what you thought it could be. And yeah. Surpass that. Well, I will say, I, First, I mean, we have a template for it a little bit. Sierra Nevada has done, done a little bit of this with resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, that's more focused on a specific location, you know, like helping out people um, in California affected by the fires. This was meant to be something that each brewery could do to help out in their local community. And we didn't set a lot of, we didn't set a lot of guidelines for, who they who people had to give money to um mostly because we know that every community is different in their needs and you know i think that played out really well a lot of breweries were brewing the beer and then taking the proceeds and using it 
um, if they had like a, if they had their own kitchen, uh, brewing meal, uh, making meals for for staff and other hospitality workers um, to come by and pick up, or donating to organizations that were helping out hospitality workers, um, uh, or, or even just like you know helping helping out their own furloughed staff, which is you know kind of a big deal. A lot of these breweries really can't afford to just keep paying people to be on to be on uh, salary um, while this is going on or they may not have a place to come back to. So, you know, I think this is just a way to try to help out. Fortunately, our government here stepped up a little bit and has helped people out a little bit more, but that's going to end at some point. And I don't think that, I think a lot of these people that are laid off right now are going to stay that way. So, I mean, for us, we've already brewed four batches and, um, you know, we'll probably, I don't know how many more we'll do yet, but there's still, there's still going to be a lot of need for a long time, which is why the whole project was open-ended as it is. Like people would hit me up and say, Hey, I'd like to brew the beer, but I don't think I can do it until June. It's like, great, do it in June. Like nobody like do it, do it next September. Like whenever, whenever you want, there's always going to be people in the hospitality industry that are going to, that will have been affected by this, that will still be being affected by it. It's just going to go on for a long time. So um, we just wanted to, we wanted to step up and try to encourage people to get involved because we all know that hospitality workers are the front line in selling beer for us. So if we abandon those people right now, that's a bad look. And I think we need to make sure that they're taken care of because we all want them to be there when we get back to normal. So that was kind of the, that was kind of the goal behind it. And what was your expectations of, of, of how far it could go? I thought we would, uh, I mean, I thought we would get a few hundred breweries involved. Um, yeah, now it's like 800. So that's, that's been pretty insane to watch. And, uh, I think we're at 61 countries. Um, I think we're, I think it's 48 states. I think we're, I don't know. I can't remember what states we're missing, but it, it really, um, it went crazier than I thought it was going to go. I think it resonated with a lot of people and um, yeah, it's just, it's been amazing to see. It's been super amazing. And a beautiful like kind of highlight of the community that actually does surround, you know, the brewers as well as the people that are drinking the beer of like how much, well, 61 countries, you know, it became global, which is, you know, there's been, there's nothing like that that I know of that's obviously happened in the beer world. I remember the Sonoma County stuff now. Um, but the other thing that it highlighted was that the, the principle of the recipe was kind of the same for everyone. Yeah. if they had access to those well, hops. So you also got this other great highlight of just like different people brewing, you know, a pr- pretty similar basis of beer yeah. and just how different they came out. So, yeah, we definitely, we, we try to keep the recipe fairly simple so that almost anybody could brew it. Um, no exotic hops. We weren't putting Rowaka in there. No Nelson. You know, it's supposed to be mm-hmm. something that everybody could get a hold of um and then also be done for 
relatively cheap so that there's more money to donate. Um, and then, but yeah, watching people brew it has been interesting. We also, um, and seeing how they all turn out, they're all different, even though it's the same recipe, everybody's beers taste completely different. Uh, but then on top of that, we kind of left it open. A lot of people reached out and said, Hey, can we brew this beer instead? Sure. Like that's not, the point of this wasn't for us all to make the same beer. The point of it was for all of us to make yeah. a beer to sell and donate money. <laughs> so we we were pretty flexible on that. We just wanted to give we just wanted to give it direction out of the gate for people. And me personally, I'm glad when people brew the original recipe just because I think it's fun to see comparisons and you know how it just goes to show for people how different beers can be from brewery to brewery with the same recipe you know yeah like the like i said this in the first episode i did with anthony because we we talked about about this um you know the principles are simple as like you know water yeast hops malt but the differentiation you can get is infinite i mean water and 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 uh, yeah, you could go. You can go down. I mean, when I used to travel with Matt to different festivals, he'd bring out his water book, and it's just like a, a thousand page, uh, just deep dive into water chemistry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everywhere is different. So, I mean, our I'm a, I'm always amazed. Some places that way their water is. I mean, I was we were in St. Louis for Side Project Invitational, and their Corey Corey King told me the pH of their water was like ten point two, and ours is ours is seven point four in Brooklyn. And I'm like that's a huge difference. That's a huge yeah. difference. And I, I like you're of course you're gonna have different beers. There's no way they could be you know yeah. that's an that's an insane difference. And that's you know that is most of what the beer is the water so it's like that's if that's so different it's going to have a huge effect yeah. on how that's going to come out but yeah i was blown away man that altogether uh movement was just it was just so because uh, everyone was allowed you know the label was all the same the principles of the recipe were same but everyone had like an expression that they could put on it um so you got all these different characters coming to the table and just seeing you know what people could do with it was was awesome and also just what it was for because i know that in america the hospitality like over here we got a little bit of government support you know the bars and stuff but over in america it was literally everyone just came to a dead halt yeah i mean it's not again it's not a complete well i i think that there's good and there's good and bad here you can get unemployment and some people are, but I think mm-hmm. that the system was so overwhelmed. I still think there's a lot of gaps in it. And I think still have to, there's still a lot of people that need help, you know, and it's not going to go on forever the way it is. Um, so even, even if people are, even if there's some unemployment going around in the hospitality industry, that's not going to, that's not a forever solution. And, uh, no. you know, you know, you can't fix, we can't fix everything, but, it's important to at least show that you care and try to do something. So totally. And it was amazing, man. And thank you so much for doing it. And we loved being involved and seeing so many people involved as well. 
but yeah, I think we better better land this thing. So I've literally got a sheet of things that I want to ask you about, but I feel like I've just been, we had all our technical issues at the start and stuff that I feel like I'm just going to like eat all of your, all of your time. Um, so yeah, the final question, which I'm excited to hear your answer is everyone's out of the brewery. There's just you, you can brew whatever you want to just be enjoyed by yourself. No one tap is going to come in and check it out. What's that beer going to be? That's a, that's a, that's a tough one. I'm going to, I'm going to probably go. I, I would have said maybe all Citra, but I'm really, really, really into uh small Nelson, everything we make. It's uh it's this, the problem with it is that it's really good the first month after you package it and then month two and three is incredible. So you have to like be patient Oh because wow. it's, not, it's a beer that actually just gets way better. Um, it gets super elegant. A lot of wine characteristics come through on it. I mean, it still drinks like a, it still drinks like an IPA, but like all those wine characteristics that people talk about in Nelson seven hops really start to like meld together and come out. And it's, it's like probably the most elegant IPA that I can think of. It's, I love it. That might be the thing I would brew. Well, I wish I had a can of that right now because it made me really <laughs> want to try it. <laughs> but Sam, man, thank you so much for your time and doing this with me, man. It's been great yeah, to catch definitely. up. Um, and I can't wait till we can actually share a beer at a festival I know, no kidding. sometime in the, in the future. That's it. Another episode done. Thank you so much to Sam for doing that with me. I hope you guys enjoyed that as well. There was so much in there to kind of mull over and get excited about or reinforce your philosophies and what you think beer should be and breweries should be. I know that, again, like I said in the intro, the conversations I've had with Sam in the past have really, really changed my perspective on how things should run in the industry and also what it is that's most important about this industry which is people having fun so i hope you join us next week thank you so much for listening to the first time with track brinko and as ever stay thirsty